so this is our penultimate episode. That means next to last. I know she so, said that because of me. <laughs> no, not for everyone listening. The penultimate, <laughs> the one before the last one. So next week or whenever the next one comes out, that'll be the last one because there's only six chapters. So today's just chapter five, women and relationship. So um, it's going to get this chapter's a lot longer than the previous one, but it almost feels like the previous one was a lot more dense. This one, there's a lot of her telling stories about the different saints. Uh, but before we get to that, I guess there's something I'm curious about your thoughts on the very first page mm-hmm. when she talks about the link between love and suffering, because I think that this is something that is really deeply ingrained in a lot of Catholics, especially, but it's also, I think, really widely misunderstood in many ways. So I wonder if you wanted to say any initial thoughts. Yeah. So this, I had this underlined from the first time I read it as well. And, um, and also she says this again in the privilege of being a woman, or I guess she read that prior to this, but she says, mother, um, motherhood implies suffering. And I think that can, that that's very much similar to this quote of love and suffering are deeply linked. And, um, I think it just becomes very obvious when you look at the gospels and, and look at Christ's life and look at how he poured out his life for us. And that was the greatest act of love was on the cross. And so when we think about true love, it's a pouring out of self. And when there's a pouring out of self, we're denying ourselves, our desires are like our, our wants are sometimes even our needs and, and like, physical comforts for the sake of somebody else and how that is what true love is is to to give to the last drop in the same way that Christ did um but talk to me about being misunderstood because i do think you know we can in this mindset like even recognizing that we can have a healthy approach to it and we can have an unhealthy approach to it mhm so i think it's related to something we've talked on this show a number of times about how it's very easy to forget that we live in a fallen world. Not in the sense that we, I mean, every, I assume everyone kind of experiences that every day, um, you know, failings of their own or other people, or you think about it, or you have to go through little, even if it's just annoyances, not sufferings. But I think that we tend to forget we live in a fallen world in the sense that we automatically just assume most of the time we operate with this idea that the way we experience life is just the way that it is. And so we think, okay, well, how I experience life is just how human beings are. So we talk about human nature is this and that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, that's true, but it's when you, when we talk like that, we often leave out or forget the fact that it's very, very easy to talk about the way that things are, but we have to remember that the way that things are, aren't the way that they're meant to be. So when she says something like love and suffering are deeply linked, the next clause is really necessary because she says on this earth, which Mm -hmm. helps you to, which helps to remind you that love and suffering aren't always going to be linked. And then implicitly, 
you realize, well, they're not, they, they're not, they don't have to be linked. They're not intrinsically linked in the sense that there won't be any more suffering in the life to come, right? right? There's no suffering in the life of glory. There's no suffering in the beatific vision. There'll be no suffering in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's definitely true a hundred percent to say that love and suffering are linked necessarily but they're necessarily linked in this life in this particular created order that happens to be a fallen one so you kind of have to remember that those two things aren't necessarily linked because when you when you operate under the assumption that well this is just how things are we have to suffer you can kind of develop a piety that expects and almost looks for suffering in a way that might be harmful to you, mm. where you think, well, I must not be doing something right if I'm not suffering. Or if I'm suffering, then, okay, that's fine. That's just how I have to just endure it. I shouldn't do anything to alleviate my suffering because I know that I'm supposed, it's to, efficacious right, and, I'm supposed yeah. to offer up my sufferings to Christ and unite them to the cross. And I just, I shouldn't do anything. So I think that there's like a fine line to draw here between recognizing that suffering and love are linked, like she says. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but at the same time, not to be tricked into thinking that, well, this is what is I'm supposed to be suffering and I shouldn't do anything on my own to alleviate it because there's things that right, God gave you reason and free will as well. Right. right. So there, there's a kind of link between, well, I should operate and, take actions to make my life the best that it can be because God gave me this life to do something good with. And if I have to receive a suffering apart from my own choices, right. right. Outside of my own control, then I can accept that. Right. So a suffering that is your own fault or that you could escape from, right. You should, right. So if you're, you know, if you're unhealthy because of unhealthy choices and you suffer for it, the, the idea would be, okay, well, make better choices and that can alleviate the suffering. And that's something that God wants, right? God doesn't want you to suffer by your own hand, essentially. Absolutely. But if suffering comes from the outside and there's nothing you can do about it, that's when you There's a submission it. Yeah, to that suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're all going to face it. That's the thing. Like suffering is non-negotiable in this life. We are all going to have suffering and we either are going to have it without Christ or we're going to have it, we're going to endure it with Christ. And when we endure it with Christ, there is this promise of, of um, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And it doesn't mean suffering isn't suffering because if it becomes so easy that it's not suffering anymore, we find that the saints usually die at that point, you know, like they're, they're like where it's just so easy, you so know, they defeated the final yeah. boss in a video game or something yeah. like, well, you, you know, there's nothing left to do. So Yeah. But it, so it's going to ache a bit. But the idea is that Christ in his grace makes suffering lighter on us. The grace makes it sweet. There's a sweetness even within suffering united to Christ. And that's where I think the love comes in as well. So like, you know, thinking about a mother who's waking up to nurse her baby overnight, that doesn't feel exactly. good, but you're doing it for uh -huh. the baby and you're not thinking, I mean, hopefully, you know, hopefully we, we submit to that as part of our role of like this self-giving love. And there's a real sweetness when we submit to it. And we're, we're very like, um, just let go of 
our desires and submit to it and look in our baby's faces and just say, wow, I love you, you know, and, and that can be really hard. That's, that's a death to self. That's a small death to self. Um, but those are the moments of, I think, purification. And that's where that is where I think the most powerful healing happens in the human race through this heart, you know, a heart transformation, you know, mm -hmm. suffering to the, and our divine physician is giving us certain crosses and, and it actually helps our hearts to love more. Yeah. So I think like the, the example you're using, right, staying up late with a child or something, mm -hmm. that suffering in itself is going to be sanctifying. But if you're, but let's, let's add, you know, it's, so if you're up till 2am nursing like yeah. a child or up with a sick child, right, that's going to be sanctifying in itself. If I'm up till 2am ruining my sleep, because I'm like at the pub or watching too many movies or something, and I suffer for it, mm -hmm. that suffering is not in itself going to be sanctifying. Right. It can be a cause of my sanctification if I cooperate with grace and recognize, oh, I've really been met, like I've been making bad choices. And then sanctification can come after that and recognizing, right. actually, I should remove this suffering from my life because it's coming because of things that I can actually control and things that are actually vicious and not virtuous for me. But suffering that comes as a result of either completely outside your control or suffering that comes because you're being virtuous, right? That's yeah that's the good stuff yes so i do think it is is a really strong note to say love and suffering are deeply linked on this earth mm -hmm. like i think that's a really yeah um important thing and and also it just reminds us all that we're pilgrims like this earth is not home and it's not where we're gonna have the fullness of health and well-being and perfect happiness in every moment you know we're not actually here for that and when we experience that that is droplets of heaven and eternity coming down and that's you know i i think about like over the course of our life there's a sort of weaning from this earth that happens by suffering yeah well that's i think it's there's it's a kind of school of virtue in that sense where you have to learn to unite love to suffering mm -hmm. you just have to or else it's just i think it's um scott Hahn has the i i don't know if he came up with this himself he i've heard him say it many times where he he says you know love without suffering is unthinkable mm. but suffering without love is impossible it's an unbearable in this so in the sense that you know love without suffering you can't think of that because that doesn't exist here there's always some kind of suffering that comes with love because yeah. of the fallen order but suffering without love is unbearable you just can't do it and so you're either going to despair without love or come through it if you unite love to it in some fashion. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the next sort of notes we have here are on motherhood and virginity. Mm -hmm. um, did you? Yeah. So it's, mm -hmm. it's the section where she talks about the renunciation of marriage and motherhood. So it comes after, comes after she talks about the relationship of, um, between maternity and feminism besides so i didn't know if you had any thoughts about that in particular before we move on but this idea yeah. that she she kind of tart she singles out one particular aspect of what feminism is doing that it's not just it's not a kind of broad i mean i suppose she probably would say that it's a broad movement right but she's kind of singles out maternity as a particular enemy yeah feminism. she says so on page 104 she says the the philosophy selects maternity as its main target um and i particularly she talks about modern eves 
And I think this is very key because for women, it's, I think, a constant choice of it's, it's black or white, right? Like we can't be lukewarm or one or the other. Like, are we going to be like Eve or are we going to be like Mary? And, um, and with, with our lady, she is both mother and virgin, which we'll get into that in a second. But, but I do think that this is an important note on feminism and it's a, it's essentially its main problem. If you look at third wave feminism and Margaret Sanger, like she just hated motherhood and like the quote, she said, the, the things she talked about children, like it's absolutely like horrific. It is truly horrific. So I, I think Alice here is hitting on what feminism is now and and recognizing that because I think there is a true attack. There is definition. There is the movement of what feminism is. And it's not just about, you know, women being treated well and equally mm-hmm. to men. It's It's gotten far past that to erasing woman's gift um in this day and age and so because i think i think one of the problems i see with feminism is like so many people want to twist it and be like oh but there's a different kind of feminism or this is the wrong kind of feminism and and it just gets put in all these gray areas there is a definition of feminism there are the leaders who started this movement third wave feminism we're talking about And those leaders were Marxist and they hated motherhood and they hated children and they were pro-abortion and all these things. And we have to be able to recognize that we, we can't just make the word feminism, what we want it to be so that it doesn't sound as bad or to make people feel more comfortable. And I think that's why I could never call myself a Catholic feminist, even though I'm so pro woman, right? It's, I think what Alice talks about she says i'll never say feminism i'll say femininity and i think that's that's staying true to what the definitions of these words mean without getting into this hazy gray area where things get very confusing when you're making your own definitions when the mainstream truly is saying one thing about a word Mm -hmm. yeah that's really interesting it makes sense though because if if this is part of if feminism is part of the inheritance of the enlightenment which I think that she has tried to talk, that she's tried to argue in previous chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. One of the main projects, if not the main project of the Enlightenment is to have mastery over nature. And I mean, I, I don't think she would disagree with, with, the, with the idea that one of, if not the greatest powers you could have over nature would be power over human life and death. Yes. And so if you have, so if, you know, kind of the, the conquering or the come on, you know, the, the commoditization of motherhood is a, is sort of a prime target, like she says, and she doesn't, I don't think she, I don't think she mentioned it here at all, but I think, you know, one of the big things that you're seeing is um, the, the increase in the last decade or two of surrogacy yeah. in the world, especially, and it, it, even, even aside from like religious or philosophical or ethical kind of issues about surrogacy itself, right? You can kind of see how much of a disaster it is. And the fact that you've got, you know, you have like these surrogacy farms in like Eastern Europe that are just, I mean, it's just a new kind of essentially slave labor 
And it's once again, you know, you have surrogacy being seen on the surface. It has this veneer of, oh, well, this is really good for women because they can make choices for themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's just enslaving women who are more poor and desperate. Mm. Right. That's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting thought. It's just a new kind of, it's just the latest form of human trafficking, really. Right. I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm going to just say this as like a side note to the listener, just in case they're interested in digging in this more. I'm reading Frankenstein right now (laughs) by um, Mary Shelley. And it really hits on these themes of how science can go wrong. And like, where do we have, um, where should our limitations can be? Like, even if we can do something, should we do something? Yeah. And I'm really getting into like the sort of thoughts and bioethics and how this works, like, and how horrific this can look like, like the outcome of using science for um, stepping past our boundaries as human beings. And I think as Catholics, like we have a really great relationship with science and reason. Like we, we really want to be able to use reason, but also stay moral in our boundaries and understand our boundaries and what we should do, even if we could um, and should not do. Right. It's very interesting. So if you're interested in this topic, I highly suggest reading that novel. Or watching Jurassic Park. Or reading Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) You could read Jurassic Park too. Actually, the book is better than the movie, but the movie is pretty fun. Well, there's there's actually, there's a lot more bioethics stuff in the book than in the movie. Like it comes through a little bit in the movie, but I mean, you, you can only do so much, you know? right hollywood film right um let's talk about okay yeah so my second question really like for this for this chapter i could just get like like three questions essentially so the second question is about this relationship so she says it it's on on 105 she says a consecrated virgin seems to be renouncing motherhood the very opposite is true which Mm -hmm. sounds like a paradox and i think that you see it a lot i mean i feel like i've seen it a lot on online where i've seen like posts about people who like women who are joining religious orders or even which kind of making a comeback now about just um pure consecrated virginity not even like joining a religious order just making this particular choice so making these vows outside of sort of a traditional religious order and i've i've seen you know like beautiful pictures and stories posted about this stuff and i mean half the comments will be people who understand what's happening and be like all congratulations. And then a lot of other people, even well-meaning people, completely just sort of miss what's happening and even lamenting, oh, like, well, that, you know, she, you know, if she really wanted to do something good, she would have gotten married and had children because that's how you change the culture. Mm. Right. So it's, and it's that, that kind of perspective is just so materialistic in the sense that it completely rejects any spiritual power. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's, it's viewing women and that that's the other problem because you can, you can, you can view, you can have a primary view of women as oh well, like they're supposed to be mothers, right? Mm -hmm. That's, That's a lot of what we've been talking about, but that itself, I mean, even that view can be skewed in this sense where you can see a young woman join a religious order and you can lament the fact because, oh, she should have just been a mother. Like that's how she could have really done some good. Right. It's like a total rejection of the idea that, you know, like the power of prayer or the spiritual power or the spiritual maternity that a woman can have by making that choice, which is a lot of the point that she's 
I think, a lot of what she's talking about here. Yeah. And Alice actually shows that that actually spiritual motherhood is like what elevates motherhood. And it, it's actually a more powerful version of motherhood. And it's a higher good, and which is a very Thomistic perspective of St. Thomas Aquinas of saying that, you know, virginity is the highest call. It's a, it's a higher call. Um, and the reason is that spiritual motherhood is real. And I think that's what we have, what we have to recognize because all women are called to be mothers, but, and many of us, most of us will have, you know, be called to physical motherhood through marriage. Yeah. Right. I think it's, I can't remember. I was just reading this in a book. I can't remember. Who, it might've been Ignatius of Loyola who I don't remember if it was him or not, but I think one of the doctors of the church, I think it might've been Ignatius basically just explicitly says most people will be most people will like most people who make it to heaven right most mm -hmm. people who um, become saints in like the genuine sense of the term will be married just because statistically that's just that's just the fact mm -hmm. um but her talking about the fruitfulness of virginity is on the surface of it a kind of a contradiction in terms right but it's when you see the reality behind what's actually going on you can see how this is a kind of spiritualization and universalizing mode of embracing motherhood in the sense, in, in basically in the sense that Paul talks about in the New Testament, right? Where he recommends, right, staying unmarried, mm -hmm. right? Where he says, you know, if, you know, I would recommend you be as I, right? It's, and he, you know, it's most of that's in, in first Corinthians, I think chapter seven and forward, but um, yeah. So I just think that that's, something that's really misunderstood today that could use the really in, in my mind isn't that complicated but most people just aren't exposed to the idea at all and so it strikes them as extremely strange or almost as something to kind of bemoan or you know oh like oh man we lost another good one well not really right spiritual mm. motherhood is real <laughs> and she also with this hits on married couples as well who are unable to have babies so uh, thinking of infertility um, she, it, she mentions it very briefly and how that also is called for spiritual motherhood and um, it, like within the community and in this pouring out of self. Um, and she says, let's see, married couples who carry the cross of being childless similarly have no excuse for not having children, either spiritual or adopted, who thrive on their love and dedication. So um I thought that was really powerful that she she acknowledges that. Um, and once again, I just want to say Alice von Hildebrand was never able to have children. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting she points that out because one, one of the things that you see in extra biblical sources from the first few centuries is that one of the things that Christians were known for was adoption mm -hmm. because children were so devalued in you know, in the ancient world where unless if you were born unhealthy in any way, you were most of the time, I mean, you were, you were lucky to sort of stay with your family. You'd just be, you know, you talk about the, the exposure of infants. You wouldn't, you would, you know, abortion wasn't as common in the ancient world. You take the, bring the baby to term, but if you didn't want it, you just leave it outside or take it to the trash heap. And Christians were known for going and rescuing all of these little children and raising them it's in beautiful. their communities. Yeah. Um, so I know, I mean, I know adoption has been 
from what I understand, it's, so it's complicated been made really now. difficult and expensive and expensive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's, well, that's yeah part of the difficulty. So I know that it's not the same. You can't just go pick up a kid like at the orphanage, like in, you know, an old, you know, an old movie or something. Right. It's very um, complicated. I know how, I know how difficult and painful it can be. We can be with friends who've adopted, but, um, so many and, and not everyone can do that. And I, I understand that, but at the, at the very least what she mentions, right. Spiritual motherhood or spiritual adoption in the sense that, not having your own children kind of, you know, when you embrace that cross, it allows you to open up your life and your heart and your home to, you know, even more well, in a way that you can't if you have your own kids or something, because you're often sort of just consumed with what they need right then, as opposed to being a little more, uh, you know, maybe less deep in that sense, but allows you to be a lot more broad. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And notice, you know, Alison Dietrich did not adopt they remained childless, but they both were academics. And look, like I feel that Alice von Hildebrand has tons of children, spiritual children, like from her writing and everything like that. Like, and so does Dietrich. So you see that they, they truly poured, they poured of themselves and have a very, like, I really think if anyone knows spiritual motherhood, like she truly knows the value of it. And she's so confident in it that she can talk all about physical motherhood in the way that she does and encouragement in this in physical motherhood without any sense of like like you don't get even a hint of her you know sadness which I'm sure I'm sure she went through I mean infertility is a very difficult thing for a woman mm -hmm. especially you know obviously and a man and a woman but I think it's it's especially difficult for a woman well related to that point I mean especially difficult for a yeah. woman uh, my third question is really related to the previous question, and it's about. She makes the point, which is interesting. I and I and I thought about this before, but not too deeply. So I don't actually have. There might be a legitimate answer. I, I'm not quite sure. She doesn't get into the answer, but she talks about how in in the calendar and the liturgy, right? We celebrate different saints. Mm -hmm. She says, "Well, with them, there's all these different categories, right? For male saints." Oh. Right, you know, martyr, confessor, doctor, uh, you know, whatever, all of these different categories. But she says there's a category of virgin saint that we really only use for women. And it's kind of interesting because we've had plenty of celibate Men. male virgin saints. Yeah. But we don't talk about them like that in the same way as women. And I, I've seen this point out before as a kind of misogynistic thing. Oh, the church just values women for this one particular thing, right? It's it's another one of those what's okay, well, the church does something I don't really understand. It involves sexuality and that kind of thing. And so it must be like bad, right? So, but, so I was thinking of, so I, I'm not sure if there's a, an official answer or not, why, but my thought would be, is, you know, related to what you were just talking about a moment ago would be that it's an especially, it's, it seems like maybe perhaps a greater sacrifice to not have children for a woman mm -hmm. than for a man. So is, so my question to you, I guess, is, is, is this category of saint, right? This, you know, virgin saint or the choice is particular. Is this a recognition you think that the church just recognizes that it's a greater sacrifice for a woman to not have children, to not have a family? Because there it's, it's something that's more related to them by nature. And so to not participate in that is a greater sacrifice. And in, in that sense, more difficult and would require more grace. And so the choice of that would, if it requires more grace, would mean there's a kind of greater or extra level of sanctity that's given 
for yeah. a woman to renounce family than for a man, perhaps. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, that struck me as well mm -hmm. in this chapter, chapter. And actually, um, yes, I think that's exactly right. But there's also one other thing. Okay. So I think like it's a greater sacrifice because it's within her body, like that a human being grows. Like right. it, there's something so intrinsically uh, intimate and vulnerable about that. And it's also like a desire of woman, like a natural desire of a woman's heart to carry life within her. So I, I think that's exactly right that it is, it just is a deeper renouncement. But also, I think that the church is looking at the mystery and particular dignity of woman when he, when the church um, recognizes her virginity and it hits on like the mystery of woman and like that very sacredness of approaching her in the act and how like it is a big deal to to be married like to have to give in that gift within a woman in particular because of like her mystery and her like even her organs are you know wrapped in mystery and inside of her like there's something very sacred and reverent that needs to be like happening in the in the approach of woman like in in the i guess if you look at it from the eyes of faith that's what i thought initially when i read it like i was like this is hitting on like the the true treasure of woman does that make sense so men are trash no <laughs> <laughs> No, I understand. No, I understand. That there's a uh -huh. sacredness about women. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Men are more, I mean, it's, it might sound a little bit strange, but like men are more expendable, right? We send men to war. Men get off the boat last, right? Women and children. There's always a kind of, I think there's just like a natural communal recognition that yes. Okay. Men and women equal dignity, but we have, if we have to sacrifice someone, it should be the men. I think though it's because of, woman's frailty though and weakness that there's a particular preciousness about and fragility about her to protect her and you know people yeah. are going to be like what are you saying you know like <laughs> but i think that that is actually true and you know we we well, we've talked about this in previous episodes yeah. right where like there's a kind of physical frailty right right to women that's a kind of trade-off for different strengths that they possess that men don't have right and so there's almost a kind of uh, it's I mean, it's it's kind of funny because traditionally you think about these particular prejudices like against women, right? And for men, we'd usually think of the prejudice of uh, well, men are smarter, they're more rational, this kind of thing, and so like they have uh, you know greater you know greater powers of reason. But in in a, in a certain sense, it almost might seem like this sort of unconscious wisdom that almost says the opposite, where we kind of value well, men like they're physical strength and so we can kind of sacrifice this particular area and so when there's maybe bodily sacrifices to be made we ask men to make those mm -hmm. because of this particular i don't know natural sanctity of women mm. and children i guess it's right? we I see something special in them we need yeah I mean, children need to be cared for. And then like with, with women, there's such a value in being protected by a man. There's such a, like, like by your husband, you know, and 
and ultimately to be revered by him and you know like all is that a word revered revered yeah <laughs> well re- yeah uh-huh but i think but you see that and i think that's what paul is getting at in ephesians what, what you're saying is basically paul's sort of spiritual reading of the mystery of the incarnation that christ comes to save his bride right mm. that's really beautiful so there's and, just so something so something that nat that sort of naturally happens in societies all throughout history men sacrifice themselves for their women right is just what is sort of the, a participation in the reality of what christ comes to do right and i think that also hits on you know we're talking about all these sort of characteristics of women like it that hits on the nobility of man and the heroism of man and um the strength of man and how he the virtue of man like when he uses his wits his strength his you know um his authority to do good and to give and to serve you know Mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah (laughs) so then she gets into all the different saints and just like a brief overview because you can name the saints like you want to but I really loved that she showed different relationships because I think like a lot of the time we've been thinking about it in terms of like man and woman romantically. Mm -hmm. Um, But I loved how she hit on not just marriage, but, you know, fathers and daughters and. Well, I wrote them all down. And okay. So so she, she, she was how many categories? One, two, three, four. So she includes five, five, five different categories. So first spouses. She talks about St. Elizabeth of Hungary and her husband, Louis. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the Martins, which is funny because she writes this before their canonization and just says, I assume they're going to be. <laughs> so, of course, yep. just a few years later, they they are um, canonized, right? And then she talks about mothers and sons, so Augustine and Monica. And then she mentions uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Francis de Sales, and John Bosco and their mothers. Mm-hmm. Then she sort of flips it, right? She talks about fathers and daughters. So she talks about Thomas More and his daughter, Margaret. That lasts a couple pages. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then briefly brings up Teresa of Avila and her father. And then sort of just as an addendum, since she kind of already covered it, she talks about Therese and her father, Louis. And then she brings up holy siblings and holy friends. So she talks about uh, Saints of Benedict and Scholastica. They were twins, right? Yeah. I think they were twins, yeah, right? Yeah, they were. Um, she, of course, she tells the famous story about Scholastica praying for rain to come so she doesn't have to leave and can keep talking to her brother. And um, I think Benedict dies a few, just a few days later. Uh, and then friends, or she talks about St. Jerome and the women friends that he had that supported him when he was in the desert uh, doing a lot of his work in translating. So Jerome with uh, Paula and Eustochium. And then talks about Francis and Claire, probably the most, probably the most famous friend saints don't you think maybe most popular oh definitely Francis for and Claire. Sure. yeah also it was saint um, scholastica who died sorry that was bothering oh it was her yeah oh okay <laughs> okay well whatever <laughs> they're twins this is the same can you tell the difference yeah um and then francis de sales again and uh jane de chantel yeah that i love that friendship i'm assuming i'm pronouncing that wrong but that's it's fine. the best that i can do that's um, what i would say yeah, so I so yeah, I think all of the little stories are really interesting. I think it's probably, you know, if you read through those and you find one that you're curious about, I'm sure that there's multiple, you know, multiple ways to read more about them, whether it's books or um, you know, things like that. 
And I think they inspire that here's the point of though, that she was giving by showing all of these friendships and relationships between man and woman. She's showing how this was very powerful. She said in the old Testament, these kinds of relationships were not possible in the way they are now after Christ came. She, that's what she said. Yeah. I mean, she, it's, it might've been like a little bit of hyperbole in, in that sense. Cause if, it, if, she, if she means completely not possible, I don't think that would be true, but if, but I think what she probably means, and maybe I just am not remembering the particular way she words it, right? It's that there's something brand new that yeah. happens with Christ, right? So not that it was impossible totally before, but the incarnation and grace makes this just a different kind of thing, like right. you're mentioning, right? And there's you a can... kind of possibility here that wasn't. You can have there. these virtuous relationships right. between man and woman that are extremely holy and powerful and even friendships that are extremely pure and powerful and sibling relationships that like last forever and are close and intimate, you know, and vulnerable, like all of these things are possible because of grace and because of the healing we found in the sacraments and all of these things, like it's so real. And for me, it just having been a lot of my summer has been like a lot of old Testament studies and I've been particularly, uh, I don't want to say scandalized, but like, I guess it's just been like a little bit turbulent to get into how women were treated in the Old Testament and like all the different stories and like the emphasis, like, it, like there's just a lot, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, don't read the book of Judges. Right. So although there, it's, it's really funny because it's not maybe funny is the wrong word, but it's kind of interesting that. And from what I can recall, the book of Judges has some of the most uplifting and sort of really positive views of women because there's a handful of uh, like women leaders in Israel that are really they're really interesting to read about. And at the same time, there's some really horrific things that happen to women in that book, too. Right. I think that's what it is. And mm -hmm. and so for me, when she mentioned like how things shifted with Christ coming with the incarnation and the, and the New Testament, hmm. Um, that like really hit me because it explained a lot to me um, because I'm like, actually, like there's such, it, you see within the Catholic church, such an upholding of women and their dignity, particularly in the Catholic church, because we have our lady as the guide. Like when you, I think we talked about this last chapter, when you lose our lady, you kind of, um, you lose that particular um yeah, that particular understanding in depth of just how, like, how much the church upholds woman, you know, and, and her dignity. The only one that I can think of off the top of my head, and I'm probably missing something, is Tobias and Sarah, I think. Because mm -hmm. right, that's in, in that story. I think there's the specific explicit language of friendship in relation to their marriage. But apart from that, yeah, it's tough to think of any others that were where there's like, like a that. very pure yeah, like thing going on there. There's no polygamy. There's no, there might know. be, I'm sure there's, I'm, <laughs> I mean, there might be one I'm forgetting, but that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. But it's also really interesting in that that would be one of the ones that would be, um, you know, that story would have been written closer to 
the birth of Christ than a lot of the other that's stories. Yeah, that's interesting. Because the I, fathers like talk said, about that yeah. a lot, where they talk about how on both sides of the incarnation, the closer you get to it, the more kind of the the, the greater Israel is going to reflect on its revelation. So you see, as they get closer and closer to the incarnation, there's more and more insight that that's, Israel gets. That's super cool. And so you know, that's, I assume that would be one of them, right? One of one of that right? one of their that recognition. Yeah. Of what marriage this is meant to be. Yeah. It's really cool. Cool. And it's also very hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's very hopeful that, you know, marriages, we can find healing. We can work hard to nourish our marriage, but also rely on the sacraments to, to help us have good relationships between men and women, mm-hmm. be it marriage, be it, you know, friendship, be it siblings, be it, you know, fathers and daughters, mothers and sons. Like we have the grace. Yeah, because I think, and maybe we'll close on this. The idea is that all the baptized are part of the family in that sense. So even, so so no matter what, right, another, right, another, you know, a, a member of the opposite sex is meant to be viewed as a sibling. Yeah. In that sense. And so not, you know, strictly all the time, right? Uh, or else you could just, you know, no one would ever get married, but. Um, there is that sense in which baptism creates a family. And so with the help of grace, right, you should hopefully be able to cultivate those kinds of relationships and friendships in a way that's really healthy. Yes. And sin still exists. Our fallen nature still exists. But we also can pray and fast and run to the sacraments. 